we are starting this week a new series. It's going to be about four weeks. Bad religion. Now, if you are my age and were, as I was in high school and <clears throat> still, into skate punk, you might think that this is a sermon series revolving around the band Bad Religion. It's, it's not. So don't have to worry about that. Um, although that might actually be a fun exercise at some point. But no, we're going to be looking at how, and how religion, even, even good religion, even religion that, that, that claims to worship God can, can go bad. You know, there's, there's been a lot of words written uh, over the last 10, 15, 20 years about the decline of religion in the United States. Uh, just last week, Gallup released a poll that shows that for the first time since they have been measuring, so since the first time since the mid-20th century, religious attendance in the United States has dropped below 50% of the population. Now, this is not church attendance. This is religious attendance. So this includes um, Jews and Muslims and Hindus and everybody else. Now, obviously, a huge chunk of that is church attendance or Christians, but it's not exclusive to Christians. Across the board, we have seen this decline in weekly worship attendance. And in fact, this decline has been precipitous, dramatic, and quick. In 2000, weekly worship attendance was over 70%. And it's now under 50. So in 20 years, we have dropped over 20 points. That's more than a point a year in worship attendance. But... But in this really weird way, Americans are more religious than ever. We are just adopting new religions. For, for far too many people, the, the political has become religious. And they talk about their political affiliation as if it was a religion and a religious affiliation. For others, the, the worship of their ethnicity has become religious in nature. We see more and more and more people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious, which as near as I can tell involves not doing anything, not believing anything, and going to the crystal store in the mall. I always like to joke with people that I'm religious but not spiritual. We see this really weird thing where our our worship attendance, our religious attendance is down, and yet we are behaving in ways that we always have. Alex de Tocqueville was a, was a Frenchman who came to the United States in the early 19th century and sort of observed American life, wrote a very famous uh, book called Democracy in America, and he talks about how religious Americans are. Americans are religious, and we will continue to be religious, but in some different ways. But even within American Christianity, there are some troubling trends that are happening. There's this thing, maybe you have, maybe you haven't heard of it, called the New Apostolic Reformation. These are a group of people who, who want to create a fifth branch of Christianity. So there's the Eastern Orthodox, there's the Roman Catholic, there's the Protestant, there's the Pentecostal, and they want to create a fifth branch. Think of 
uh, Kenneth Copeland and the folks at Bethel. They're part of this new apostolic reformation. Bethel, who has incorporated all sorts of things like incantations and chants from their worship stage. Then, of course, we have the prosperity gospel. You can think again of Ken Copeland or Joel Osteen or Paula White. People who tell you that if you love God and God loves you, then you will be blessed. I wish someone had told Jesus that on his way to the cross. There's also this so-called rise, this rise of so-called Christian nationalism that is troubling melding a worship of the nation state together with the worship of God. Now, I am as patriotic as the next guy. I love my country, and I love my God, but I also recognize that these are two separate things. And that my ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Then on on sort of, maybe we could call it the other side, there's this group out there that are calling themselves the ex-evangelicals. And so these are people, mainly young people, who are claiming to be disgusted by the hypocrisy they have seen in the church, and they have deconstructed their faith, often deconstructing their faith into nothing. Over the last several months, several years, we've seen several high-profile religious Christian leaders, some musicians, some pastors, leave the faith. Two names that you might be familiar with, Joshua Harris, who wrote a very popular book in the late 90s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye went on to become a pastor. He not only kissed dating goodbye, he kissed his marriage and the faith goodbye as well. Audrey Assad, whose music has blessed this congregation, has left the faith and actually had a series of posts on social media this week about how she, her eyes were opened when she took hallucinogenic drugs for the first time. So it seems more and more that, that there is this disquiet in the church and surrounding the church. And it seems more and more that if you listen at least to the folks outside, that the church is known or, or, or maybe even wants to be known for what it's opposed to instead of what it's for. Now, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that we don't defend orthodoxy. I'm not saying that we don't defend a Christian worldview. But I am saying that we need to do so in a way that honors Christ and magnifies His glory and His kingdom. But see, the comforting thing, at least I think it's comforting, is either comforting or really upsetting. I think the comforting thing is, is this isn't new. It also could be kind of discomforting that it's not new, that we haven't figured it out yet. But... But it's not new. If we go back to Scripture, we're going to see over, you see over and over and over again where the people of God get it wrong. Where over and over again the people of God end up down this trail to bad religion. Bad religion is something that's plagued God's people throughout the Bible, it's a thing that has plagued God's people for the 2,000 years since Christ. And 
And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to lean on the words of the prophets. We're going to lean on Jesus's encounters with religious leaders. And we're going to look to the book of James. And, and we're going to examine how the Bible deals with hypocrisy and bad religion. And, and by, by learning some common ways that we can get in the way of God's purposes, we also can see how maybe we can break out of our own religiosity. So this, this sort of emptiness in which we go through the motions. Where we can break out of our religiosity and still be imperfect, because I hate to break it to you, but you're imperfect, but faithful. Imperfect, but faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Imperfect, but faithful disciples. Imperfect, but faithful people who strive to grow in Christ's likeness day in and day out. And so today we're in the book of Amos. We're in the book of Amos, um, Amos chapter 5. If you're unfamiliar with where um, Amos is, Amos is one of the Old Testament prophets. He's one of the ones that we call the minor prophets because his book is not that what he said wasn't important, but because his book wasn't very, his book's not very long. And you can see about where it is in Scripture. It's going to be before Matthew and after Isaiah, roughly. So we're in Amos chapter 5. We're going to be starting with verse 10. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Now this is Amos giving the words of God to the people of Israel. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate, and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and extract a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live, and the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says, there will be wailing in all public squares. They will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called to mourn and the professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light? Even gloom without any brightness in it? Mm, I hate. I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. 
house of Israel, it was sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness. But, will, but you have taken up Sakuth your king, and Kaiwan your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we wrestle this morning with these tough words, these tough words to your people, God, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. Okay, let's, let's be honest. This is tough. This is hard. God's words to his prophets through his prophets often are a hard, tough word. It's words that people don't want to hear because they've been rebelling against God. What's important when we, when we look at the Old Testament prophets, it's important to locate them in context. To whom are they speaking and when? Because over the various course, over the, the various courses of the history of the people of God, different things were happening at different times, right? And so sometimes uh, if we don't understand the, the moment that the prophet is speaking these words, the moment that God is giving this word to his people, we can, we can get sort of crossways and, and, and can miss what's happening. So Amos is this interesting, Amos is this interesting case. Amos is not a religious leader. He's not a scholar. He's not a priest. He's not trained. Amos is a shepherd. Amos is a shepherd. Amos is a shepherd from the southern kingdom. So Amos is prophesying after the division of the kingdom of Israel. So after Solomon, if you, you might remember, you might not, the kingdom of Israel divides. It divides into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they, they sort of go alongside each other for a while. Sometimes they're rivals, sometimes they're allies. They do recognize that there is a sort of a common God that they are called to worship and to follow. And we see a lot of this where prophets from one kingdom prophesy in the other kingdom, and that's what happens with Amos. Amos is from the southern kingdom. He's from the kingdom of Judah. But he, he, crosses, he crosses that near eastern Mason-Dixon line and goes and prophesies in the north. Now, it's at a particular time. It's during the reign, we know it's during the reign of Jeroboam II is the king in the north, and Uzziah is the king in the south. And this is important because it lets us know that this is a time of prosperity and goodness in these kingdoms, at least goodness in the terms of the way the world measured it. They have had military victory after military victory. Both kingdoms have sort of expanded and expanded their influence. They are, they are winning against their enemies. They are not losing. And it's a time of material prosperity. Everything seems to be going well. Now, one of the only things that the Bible tells us about Jeroboam II, who is the king in the northern kingdom when Amos is prophesying there, is that he was evil. So he wins on the battlefield. He, he brings home the spoils of war to his people, but he does not worship God 
and he is in fact evil. But what's going to happen is the people are going to have a hard time wrapping their brains around what Amos is trying to tell them. That things aren't all good and that things actually, actually are very bad and that, that bad things are coming for them unless they repent and turn away because everything seems like it's wonderful. They've got food in the pantry, coin in their pocket, and peace at home and victory abroad. And so when Amos shows up and says, hmm, things aren't going well, it's be easy for the people to look around and point and say, what are you talking about? Everything is wonderful. But Amos, of course, is talking about things on a different level. And so in, in chapter 5, the first 17 verses, the first part of chapter 5, um, um, we, we, read, we read a little bit of that. But the first 17 uh, chapters of verse 5 is God's pleading with the people to turn back to him. God, God wants to see the people return to him because, because they haven't. And, and we get there at the very end of the chapter, you see this thing about these foreign gods. And just put a pin in that, we'll come back to it. But you need to understand that idolatry, as it is for God's people so much of the time, idolatry has raised its ugly head and the people are not worshiping God. They're not following God. And so, and so we get this, this, this call for people to return to God. And then, and then in the sort of the second half of the chapter, which is what we're looking at today, we see God through Amos confronting the hypocrisy of the nation and, and proclaiming God's coming judgment. See, this is what God does. He, he places prophets in and among his people who are going to, uh, this is, is a bit of a cliche, but it's true. They're going to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. This is what Amos is doing. And this is why the words of the prophet are often hard. Because when you're comfortable, do you want to be, when you're uncomfortable, you want to be comforted, right? When you're afflicted, you want to be comforted. But when you are comfortable, do you want to be afflicted? No, you want to stay comfortable, right? I mean, it's why we freak out when the AC goes out. Because we want to be comfortable. And here in southeast North Carolina, just like where I'm from on the Gulf Coast, man, if that AC goes out, you are uncomfortable real quick. We want to, in our, we want to stay in our comfort. But, but what Amos is doing is he, he's shining a light on this disconnect between what the nation's religious expressions are and how they're actually treating people. And he's saying these two things don't go along with each other. So it's, it's a prosperous and peaceful time for the nation, but there's this, all this stuff that's happening at, at the gate. Did you catch that reference to the gate several times? Right there in, the, in verse 10, the verse that we started with, they hate the one who can fix the guilty at the city gate. And we, see, uh, and we see at the end of 12, they deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. The city gates, that is, that's, where, that's where justice is done. That was the courtroom of the day. If you read through um, 
the Torah, if you read through the law, if you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll see that they, they, over and over again, they say if someone's accused of a crime, take them to the city gate. Because that's where trials are conducted. That's where things are sort of figured out. It's where the, the wise men and the elders of the community would be sort of just hanging out. And so what happens is, is we see here that, that the people, that the people are, are, are not in favor of justice. They're in favor of themselves. They're not in favor of righteousness. They're in favor of their own comfort. We see that their, their favor could be bought. They intimidated those with whom they disagreed to, to the point that, that people just kept quiet. Right? They hate the one who convicts the guilty. They despise the one who speaks with integrity. This is God's people that God is talking about. But, but God sees it. Nothing is hidden from God. He, he knows their transgressions, right? He lays them out there in verses 11, 12, and 13. You trample on the poor. You extract a grain tax from them, which they were not supposed to do. Your crimes are many. Your sins are innumerable. But once again, God offers to them the opportunity to turn away from evil and seek their good. And then we come, we come to verse 18. And, and, and verses 18 through 27 are the verses that should really make us pause. Woe to you who longs for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? See, the people of Israel, God's people, believed that the coming judgment was going to be for someone else. They believed that all those people out there that they didn't like were going to be the ones that were going to fall under God's judgment. They, they were looking forward to God's wrath being, being met out on their enemies. Not on the enemies of God, but on their enemies. See, they, they thought that, that God's judgment wasn't for them. After all, they couldn't fall under God's judgment. They were God's people. They were the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. But, but what's happened, because the people of Israel, because God's people have chosen not to follow Him, because they have rebelled against Him, because, because of all of these things that Amos has just laid out, yes, they are God's people, but they've also made themselves God's enemies. And so as God's wrath and God's judgment is poured out on his enemies, it will be poured out on them. And yet, unaware, they are welcoming the day of judgment. They're longing for the day of judgment. Because it was going to affect them, not us. See, 
they, they think that all of the things that they do are going to placate God. Their festivals, their sacrifices, their, their, their religiosity. The fact that they show up to the temple, they offer the burnt sacrifice, they offer the grain sacrifice, that keeps them on the right side of God. But what, what does God say? In verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fat and calf. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. doesn't matter how wonderful and pleasing and, and to the letter perfect their worship was. Because their worship was not putting them in relationship with God, and that relationship with God was not pouring out into their relationship with other people. It was emotion. It was, it was, it was vanity. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the people who came before me, but some of you might remember you used to have, you would get little envelopes. Oh, well, I don't know if you got them here or not. I know in a lot of churches we did. I knew that when I'm very little, we had them. You'd get a little, a little envelope, right? And you had little check marks. I went to Sunday school. I did my Bible reading. I Here's my offering. And, and we, turned, we turned what's supposed to be a living, breathing relationship accidentally turned it into a checklist. Now, the purpose of that checklist was to help you. The purpose of that checklist was to give you a tool to help you remember, hey, here are some things that you can do to help your relationship. But we're human beings. And so we turn things and we mess things up and we, we get things wrong. And so we turned what was supposed to be a wonderful tool and we turned it into a checklist for our religion. And I think too many of us felt like as long as we were checking the boxes, and we might not have physical boxes to check anymore, but I think a lot of us still carry this mentality with us. If we have a list that we can check off every day, then we're good. I've done my part. I've done my part, God. Now it's time for you to do yours. But here's the thing. If your relationship with God is not such that it's causing you to treat other people not the way they even want to be treated, but to treat people the way God wants you to treat them, the way that God would treat them, the way that Jesus would treat them. If If your relationship with God isn't flowing out, it doesn't matter how many boxes you check. You have accidentally fallen into bad religion. 
the very end of the chapter, and I said we put a pen in it, and so, and so now we're back. Those very in concluding verses of the chapter are a reminder to God's people. They were a reminder to God's people then, and I think they're a reminder to us, to God's people now, that God's people have always struggled with this. We have always struggled with this, this straying from God. You know, he says, he says, was it sacrifices and grains and offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? No, it was a golden calf. Remember the golden calf? It was the golden calf. And so then it was the golden calf. And now Amos is telling the people, it's not the golden calf anymore, but it's this star god. One of these, one of these nearby local pagan deities that had sort of worked its way into the worship of Israel. And so just as Amos is reminding the people to whom he is speaking, I think Amos is reminding us, God is, remind, God is reminding us through Amos that this is a struggle that God's people deal with. And so if it's a struggle that God's people deal with, if it's a struggle that that we potentially could deal with, we have to ask ourselves, are we on God's side? Do Do we think that we're on God's side? Or have, like the Israelites, have we accidentally become the biggest offenders? See, here's the thing. God held the nations around Israel to a different standard than he held Israel to. Because the nations around Israel did not know that he was God. But God's people are held to a higher standard. Scripture tells us that. Scripture tells us that God's people are held to a higher standard. God's Scripture tells us that leaders in the church are held to a higher standard still. A fact that makes me quake with fear. Day in and day out. What do we do when we think we're the good guys, but we're actually the bad guys? You know, because we all think that we're the good guys, right? The villain is the hero of his own story. There's a really uh, funny sketch um, from a British sketch show called uh, Mitchell and Webb. And it takes place on the Eastern Front during World War II. And it starts out, and, and these guys, and it's important to remember, these guys, are, these guys are Brits, right? So this adds some, some flavor and some context to this. And so the, it starts, and you've got the two guys who are Mitchell and Webb, and, and they're dressed up in Nazi uniforms, and they're talking about that they're going to stop the Russians, you know, here or whatever. And one of the guys looks at the other one and he goes, what if we're the baddies? What if we're the baddies? We see two words, two Hebrew words used over and over again. And particularly here in verse 24, it's the Hebrew word for justice and righteousness. The Hebrew word for justice is this word mishpat. Mishpat. And what it means there is it means, it means actions 
that are taken to correct injustice. Which is actually maybe not that useful of a definition. Justice is the opposite of injustice. Injustice is the opposite of justice, right? That doesn't, that doesn't help all that much. But I think the important thing with mishpat there is that it's not just this idea, it's actions. God is saying here that let your actions to correct injustice flow like water. The second word is righteousness. In Hebrew, it's, and I'm going to apologize if any of you know Hebrew, um, my Hebrew pronunciation is not great. Um, Tzedadka. Tzedadka. T-S-E-D-A-Q-A-H. Tzedadka. Tzedadka. Ah, yep, you get it. Not going to try that anymore. My problem with trying to speak another language is I don't speak English that good. But, but this word, this Hebrew word, tiskadga, it, it means being in right relationship with others. So when we see this word righteousness, we see word, there was word righteousness a lot in Scripture. And what, at the root of righteousness is this idea of being in right relationship with others. Being in right relationship with one another, but also being in right relationship with God. That it flows both ways, the, the horizontal and the vertical. Being in, in right relationship with other people. Regardless of the differences. Because there's a big difference between us and God, right? But we can still be in right relationship with them. And another person, there may be a significant difference in the status between us and another person, but we can still be in right relationship with them. And so, and so here, in, at the end, what Amos is saying is that God's people should be characterized by a life of valuing all people and being committed to righting wrongs and fighting injustice, biblically defined. That that, that is what it means to, to be a follower that that's what it means to seek the kingdom of God. We prayed this morning in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's plan, God's end goal, God's read Revelation 20 and 21, God's end game is the establishment of His kingdom. His kingdom that will be marked with mishpah and tiskada. You know, in a, in a, a post-Christian society, and, and maybe in Robinson County we don't live in a post-Christian society, but in the United States we live in a post-Christian society. A post-Christian society, religion can be considered a bad word. I think that's what people mean when they say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Because religion has got this bad word on it this bad taint to it, is because religion can be marked by, by our own hypocrisy and our own checkered history. Some, some terribly brutal things were done in the name of religion in this country. I love Jonathan Edwards. I love Jonathan Edwards. But I cannot forget 
that Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on the back of a receipt for a human being. Jonathan Edwards was a sinner. I'm a sinner. Terrible things have been done in our land, in our history, in the name of religion. And so, those of us who are religious, in this post-religious culture, we have to be active in seeking out and following the kingdom of God. Because God does not ignore injustice. The words of the prophets, the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of James, the words of John in Revelation show us that Jesus, that God does not ignore injustice. And He doesn't give us a free pass to embrace our own hypocrisy because of His grace. That would be cheap grace. He doesn't give us permission to care about one thing because it's biblical, but then ignore this other thing that is also biblical because it makes us uncomfortable. And we see far too many people right now in this country embracing one and ignoring another because they like one because it comports to their own pre-existing ideas on one hand and not on the other. God doesn't give us a pass on that. Now, I'm not saying that we have to stand up for everything all the time. That would get exhausting. And I think that we can, we can be called as individuals to care passionately and deeply about one thing over others. That God empowers us to care deeply about homelessness or about abortion, or about immigration, or about food scarcity, or about criminal justice reform, or any number of things that God could call us as individuals to care deeply and passionately about, and not have to care about everything. But, but we are called into a lifelong pursuit of loving our neighbor well. We have been blessed in this fellowship to be your neighbor. Many of you have loved us well. I, I, told, I told one of you this week that you love your neighbor well. That's what we're called to do. Now, I don't say that we all have it right and we all have it perfect because we don't. And that's okay. Because the journey of faith, the life of faith, is a lifetime pursuit of loving our neighbor well. By, by learning to avoid the, the idols of our spiritual forefathers. And sometimes those idols are really easy to spot because their name is Baal or Star God. And sometimes those idols are a little harder to spot because their names are money and comfort. 
but by intentionally learning to avoid the idols of our spiritual forebears and centering our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be active participants in ushering in the justice and the righteousness and the kingdom of God. Our our religion, our faith, should be less about impressive religious spectacles as wonderful as they are. And as life-giving as they can be. And more about everyday, mundane, boring, loving faith expressed in how we respond to each other and to our neighbors and to our enemies. You know, it's much easier to point out what other people are doing wrong. Man, I'm really good at that. I am really good at pointing out what other people are doing wrong. I'm perhaps not as good at pointing out as what I'm doing wrong. It's easy for us to point out the hypocrisy in somebody else's life. They have this sin in their life. All while failing to see our reflection clearly. A couple of summers ago, we talked about some dangerous prayers. And one of those dangerous prayers is show me. And it should be our prayer. We should be praying every day, God, show me. Show me where in my life I am failing you. Show me in my life where I'm failing to measure up. Show me in my life where the hypocrisy is, where the, where the, the, the rough edges need to be worked off. Show me where I can love better. And I think if we, if we can pray that prayer and, and humbly evaluate our own our own junk in light of God's Word, we would not be apathetic in the face of bad religion. Because we cannot be apathetic in the face of bad religion. God's people right here in Israel, God's people were being apathetic in the face of, God's, uh, in the face of bad religion, and God is calling them to an account. Now, Sometimes we, we do this thing when we look at the, at the prophetic works in the Bible and, and, and we see Israel and we think of Israel as a nation and so we, we sort of compare it to current nation states. But it's important for us to remember that when God addresses Israel in the Old Testament, He's addressing His people. And so God's not addressing through Amos. He's not addressing our current nation states. He's addressing us. He's addressing his church. He's addressing those who would claim the name of Jesus and say that they follow him. We are God's people. And as God's people, we we cannot be characterized by apathy, but by the passionate pursuit of God's kingdom. A passionate pursuit of a kingdom that's marked not by secular social constructs of right and wrong, but by biblical justice and biblical righteousness. There's a lot of people out there who talk about justice and social justice and injustice and justice this and justice that and all those other sorts of things. And and that's, I want to be very clear, that's, I'm not talking about those things. The Word of God gives us the definition, the constructs, the outlines of what God's justice looks like. 
If we are going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to be disciples, we have to be concerned with the things that he was concerned about. Jesus is concerned with us making disciples, and we make disciples by what? We make disciples by baptizing, but by also teaching to obey all of the things I have instructed. So yes, Jesus is concerned with making disciples, but he's also concerned with mishpat and sedka with justice and righteousness. There's this, there's this thing that gets thrown around a lot. Apathy kills. If you're not concerned, if you're not involved, then you're, you're killing. Well, here's the thing. Apathy does kill. Apathy kills our faith and our relationship with God. We, we just got done on Wednesday night looking through the letters to the seven churches and go through and, and look at those letters. And apathy is one of the things that God calls out there too because it kills our relationship with God. God doesn't care how great and holy we are on Sunday morning if we are failing to pursue the values of the kingdom come Monday morning. These, these are the things of God. These are the things that we must pursue as individuals and as a church. There is, there is the possibility of God's people falling into error, falling into bad religion. And if, if that happens... We make ourselves liable to God's judgment, to God's wrath. I've wondered a lot over the last 12 months what was going on in the world. What was going on in the world? What was happening in the world? Where was God at work in all of this? And I have come to believe that one of the things that has happened over the last 12 months is that God is bringing his people under judgment. Because we have embraced bad religion. But here's the thing. Just as Amos gives people the chance to return to God, God gives us the chance to return to him. We don't have to be stuck in bad religion. We don't have to be stuck in, in, in these, these, these patterns that are shaped more by the word than by, God, by the world than by God's word. We can return to Him. We can return to Him. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 307, Just As I Am.